Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup, and Corey Yellen should be back in the next couple of days. Today we're going to be talking to a medical doctor who actually is supportive in the use of medical cannabis. Dr. Dave Hepburn is best known for his humorous syndicated radio program, Wisequacks, and he's been seen on Oprah Winfrey Network Canada. He's an award-winning columnist to more than 100 newspapers across the U.S. and Canada. He's on the board of directors of the David Foster Foundation, and is a clinical instructor at the University of British Columbia Medical School. Dave, did I leave anything out? Uh, you believe all that, do you? Yeah. So when, <laughs> I guess I have need to. a bio, I can write whatever I want. Well, I, I, often, I often do, and so that's how it goes from there. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, you do a lot of things. Where do you yeah. find time to practice medicine? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's squeeze it in between everything else, and you know, you're raising kids and doing everything in between. And medicine is a pretty demanding world. When did the light go on for you that maybe cannabis was medically beneficial? And I think to, to put things in context, I mean, I, I am relatively conservative, as is the medical profession. We're a conservative bunch. And, uh, but I am extremely, my friends say I make, uh, uh, Harper look like a hippie or better yet, uh, Ted Cruz look like George Carlin because I, I tend to come from that sort of a conservative background. Don't smoke, don't drink uh, kind of thing. Uh, but you know, over the years, actually about a decade ago or, ago or so, I had a call from a friend of mine, a physician in Ontario who said, listen, my mom lives in, in, uh, Victoria and, uh, she has cancer and she doesn't jaywalk. She is, uh, you know, model citizen sort of thing. She's medication naive. The one thing that she says that helps her with her cancer-related pain and her chemo-induced side effects was a friend's cookie. And and so would I help her out because her own physician wasn't going to help her make it legal for her to uh, access medical cannabis here in Canada? And I said. Um, I used the excuses that physicians use. Typically, was I, you know, I don't know enough about it. I uh, don't want to do the paperwork. I haven't seen the studies. All the usual things that we say. But what I really meant was, you know, I askew this whole sort of uh, stoner uh, culture. It's not what I'm used to doing. But he, you know, he convinced me by saying, you know, a f- only a fool and a dead man never change their minds. And if the worst side effect of something like this is that she's happy, is that a bad thing to be sick? And be ha- happy about it. And uh, again, he emphasized that she doesn't. Uh, you know, she's she's not your. She's an octogenarian. She's typically you know toes the line for everything. But this was the thing that worked for her. So I I agreed, and I've come to over the years to see more and more people who have no secondary gain, no other reason to want to go recreational, and they say to me, Doctor, I don't want to get high. I want to get help. And I, I know that this works. I have either tried it or read about it. And so, you know, you're, you, you can't be so closed minded and narrow minded thinking that you can't learn more about other things from patients. And I've always been that way. And so I began to investigate more and more. And not unlike Sanjay Gupta, who, you know, he, he wrote an article. People don't know that he necessarily, that he wrote an article for Time magazine in 2009 entitled Why I Vote No on Pot. 
where he went on to explain why marijuana was medicine. And then, of course, uh, within a year, he had, uh, he, you know, he delved into it and made that remarkable apology that physicians are not well known for making mm-hmm. and saying, look, I, I apologize. We've been, his quote was something like, I, I, for 70 years, we have been systematically misled in this country, and I apologize for my role in that. We had been dismissive of the voice of legitimate patients who had no reason to, you know, to want to go on cannabis and discovered that cannabis, uh, was not only non-toxic, was, was not toxic. It was very helpful. So again, I, I sort of went through that same sort of, uh, realization and have now become pretty much exclusively, um, dealing with cannabis. I, I, I find it's, you know, you have enough people sit in your office who, who tell you that this is what has helped them and you see it and it's extremely rewarding as a physician and it allows us to get away from some of the other medications that are so, you know, particularly opiates that are so detrimental and 40 people a day are dying in North America of of opiates. Do you see the Sanjay Gupta uh, apology as really a turning point in people's understanding of medicinal marijuana? There's no doubt that when a key opinion leader speaks out, like he uh, and now the former secretary, uh, former um, Surgeon General uh, Jocelyn Elders, uh, also even the Dr. Oz's, the, sort of the, the, the key opinion leaders, when they begin to realize and the light goes on and they see two-year-old children who have had seizure issues suddenly no longer have seizures uh, because of uh, certain oils and CBD oils and whatnot, then then, yeah, there, it is it is does a shot across the bow to other physicians and others that hey listen this this is not to be taken necessarily lightly this there is definitely a use for this within the the medical system so yeah. dave in canada what are the rules and regulations with respect to doctors prescribing cannabis yeah any doctor any doctor with an md behind their name can prescribe cannabis uh, so everybody can it's just a matter of getting the knowledge based understanding it and how to use it so most doctors uh, sort of are concerned about the, you know, um, I don't know enough about it is the, is the class excuse the one I used. Uh, but there is patient, there are patients coming in now who typically know a lot more than the physician. You know, they come in and they're well informed and they say, they don't just say, you know, they're doing cannabis. They say, I would like, uh, I'd like something with about, uh, 24% CBD, a touch of terpenes, a, a dollop of uh, mercine in it, or something like this. And they, they're, they're getting very sounds like a cocktail, doesn't it? It, it does, and it, well, and that's the nightmare of, of cannabis. Is it is pharmacologically, it is a cocktail. There's so many combinations and mm-hmm. that can be used for different reasons. And I guess the key thing I try to get people to understand is is cannabis is not equivalent to being psychoactively uh, high. Again, there's 143 different cannabinoids in an exogenous in a plant, of which only a small handful are psychoactive. So the vast majority are not. Now, the big ones, the main the main six or so, again, um, they are many of them are not psychoactive. So people are now start, starting to see, hey, listen, I can get the benefits without necessarily getting mentally compromised. When you talk to doctors, is there still pushback? You know. Less and less. In fact, I, I do travel across the country and, and uh, hope to do so in the States as well, instructing physicians from a physician because doctors like to learn from doctors. There's just no doubt about it. And and they understand that, you know, where I'm coming from as well. And I, and as I begin to do this, there's been a, a remarkable uptick in the use of prescriptions of cannabis in the areas of which I've just, where I've just spoken. 
And because the, I know what the questions are. I know what their, their concerns are. And I address those right off the hop and begin, no pun intended that, but I, I address that right off the mercy. So I, <laughs> I, and I say that to them because I want them to be able to, um, realize that this is not an infomercial. This is me in your position. I was, I was doing what you did for 30 years and I understand what you, what your reticence is or where it is. And the questions are predictable now. And so I'm able to address those for you know, right up, right up front. And yeah, there have been, there's been a really a nice tipping point now where physicians are more and more. There are more physicians prescribing and there are more prescriptions per physician than ever before. And that is moving rapidly. What are some of the concerns that they raise with you? Uh, there's the cultural concern. There's the, the, the bias that exists with everyone that, Hey, listen, this is, uh, this is a substance that uh, is used in the hippie generation and things, and the experts in the world are people who live on small little islands, and their names are Cosmos Carl, and they're prescribing super silver haze, Alaska thunderscrew or something. Not very clinical. So there's that lack of clinical aspect of it. So that is one. Uh, there's the lack of studies. But, of course, that's all been part and parcel of the fact that it has been prohibited substance and scheduled one substance in the States for so many years. So I have to explain that this is why it is. But that being said, there are many, many studies now that are happening annually every year. Uh, and these are, many of them are preclinical, observational, experimental. They may be animal studies. They may be tissue culture. They may be bench to bedside translational studies. But we're getting more into the clinical studies and it is showing, uh, some real good benefits. So it's nice to be able to sort of discuss those. Uh, other concerns that they have include the smoking aspect of it. They feel they, you know, before the oils were made available here in Canada, they felt that smoking wasn't the best sort of delivery mechanism. And so I addressed those. I addressed some of the, um, uh, concerns of the potential for, um, diversion, uh, or secondary gain, you know, selling it to other people that people get a prescription for it and turn around and sell it or that they're just using it. They're just trying to scam the doctor of being, uh, you know, they say they're sick and stressed out when really, they're just trying to get some medically approved cannabis. When cannabis is approved by the federal government in May of next year, which mm-hmm. it says it will be, how do you think the medical profession will gravitate towards it? No, I, I think a lot of that's going to have to deal with how it's rolled out. And again, that is the, the eyes of the world are on Canada to see how they're going to roll out this legalization issue. And I think the distribution of it, I think that is all going to have a factor as to how well it's accepted. So again, that's a bit of a, right now, it's a bit of a crapshoot. We're not really sure how that's going to come out. I think that, that physicians, we like things that are standardized. We like things that are uh, dosed properly and reproducible. So I, I can see the way that physicians are going to accept. I, I, you know, I don't know if you've heard recently, but one of the big uh, pharmacies here in Canada has recently applied for a license for uh, produce and and sell cannabis. That is very uh, telling as the fact that I I see it being rolled out medically in that LPs will be supplying the pharmacies who in turn will be uh, providing cannabis, I I suspect mostly in the encapsulated oil forms as opposed to the smokable uh, forms. And that physicians are familiar with capsules, Mm -hmm. um, pharmacists are familiar with capsules, and your average 75-year-old Mrs. Bloggins is familiar with a capsule. So that suddenly, you know, pills are good. Pills are, I don't know, gluten-free. They, you know, they're, people love pills. Yeah. So they, and they identify with that. 
and it is regulated dosage, and it is pharmacologically, pharmaceutically uh, approved and and prepared. So, in that manner, I suspect is how it's going to be best uh, addressed medically in Canada. An interesting thing about that, uh, though, Dave, is that if you and I take a similar dosage of a particular cannabinoid, mm-hmm. whether it's THC or uh, CBD, it may affect me more than it will affect you. So that's, I think that's the, the conundrum that doctors have. But, to- but Ian, that's true of every medication. So if I was prescribing you an antidepressant or if I was prescribing you a proton pump inhibitor for your stomach or whatever, even an antibiotic, so I could have 10 people lined up with the exact same problem and the exact same symptoms and give them all the exact same medication and have 10 different responses. So this is not something unique to mm-hmm. cannabinoids. This is something that we, we deal with in medicine all the time is understanding that there is um, it's a bit of a shotgun approach. Now, with the whole advent of pharmacogenomics, which is being able to take your gene, run it through a biochip and say, hey, listen, we know which medications of these antidepressants are going to be useful for you and which are not. That is changing, and it is, in fact, right now in some clinics, they're actually taking blood tests, doing the genome sequencing and saying, hey, listen, you can have this particular antidepressant, but you can't have this. You shouldn't have this one. And as that begins to make itself more known in in, uh, other medications, including cannabinoids, we'll be able to give you more of a laser beam approach than this this sort of shotgun. You can take it, try it. We hope it works. The key difference, however, is that cannabis is safe. Relatively speaking, I mean, there are no receptors in the brainstem, or very few receptors in the brainstem. So, as a result of that, there is a um, there there's uh, not a lot of people. Nobody dies of cannabinoids, so you have a huge safety profile. And what we as doctors look for in people when we give something to them is we look for tolerability, efficacy, safety, and cost. So those are the four things we look for in any sort of medication. Well, how does the patient tolerate it? How does it work? Is it efficacious? Is it safe? And does it, you know, is it going to bankrupt them? So these are all sort of the factors we we look at, and we begin here with cannabis with a safety pro- profile that is massive. So we we know it's safe, in in, in many ways. So whereas opiates, again, when you have forty people dying a day in North America from opiates, again, many of them not abusing them, just. Unfortunately, it's there are a lot of brainstem receptors. We did an interview with Bob Melamed uh, about a month ago, and uh, he was telling the story of a friend of his who uh, had AIDS mm-hmm. and uh, stopped taking his uh, CBD THC combination. Right, and uh, Bob hadn't seen him for a while, and he he saw him, and uh, he didn't look very well. And Bob says, "You got to get back on your high THC." So he did. He took fifty grams at one time. 50 grams, five zero, And so I said to Bob, what happened to him? He said, well, he slept a lot. Yeah, no, I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a... You know, and you're that's, right. That's an extreme case. Well, you know, and here is why it is pharmacologically a bit of a nightmare is because there are, again, there are so many different types of cannabinoids. And you mentioned THC and CBD, but there are many others. Mm-hmm. There's the whole propyl groups, which are the, the we'll called the Varens. And I think that there's a tremendous role for variants in the future here, uh, uh, with things like CBDVs and THCVs and stuff like that. There are, um, again, many other terpenes, as you're aware of. And again, their combination and their standalone uh, pharmacological properties are, are fascinating and are continually being explored. And, and, you know, and, and this is the other message I always give to people. When, when I'm speaking to audiences, I, I ask them, how many of you in this audience, and this could be an audience of physicians or otherwise, uh, how many of you, by a show of hands, currently have cannabis running in your bloodstream? 
uh, and be honest. Okay. Um, and you might see out of a hundred, yeah, you might see out of a hundred, maybe one or two hands go up and, 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 uh, and then I'll say, no, in fact, you all have cannabis running in your bloodstream. And then I go on to discuss the endocannabinoid system and that we all make our own cannabis, our endogenous cannabinoids, our anandamide, 2AG, now AEA, MPA, several others. And I then explain the, how this works in our body. And the whole idea of cannabinoid medicine or being able to, cannabis medicine, being able to harness our endocannabinoid system. How do we best harness this? How do we best look at the whole system that we have naturally and, and play off of that to help in certain conditions? Because we, there's a, there is a, what's called an endocannabinoid deficiency in suspected in in posture in a lot of conditions ranging from fibromyalgia to some types of migraines to other conditions uh, irritable bowel syndromes and we know that we either don't make enough endocannabinoid or we don't have enough receptors for it or that the enzymes that break them down are dysfunctional and that's true of a lot of systems for example other neurotransmitters that are not even as numerous as as the endocannabinoids, things like Parkinson's, it's a deficiency of dopamine. Uh, d- some depressions are a deficiency of serotonin. Uh, dementias, some are a deficiency of acetylcholine. So we know that deficiencies of certain neurotransmitters that we make lead to medical conditions. So again, endocannabinoids are one of the largest systems we have in our body. So it's very easy to have deficiency, deficiencies there. And we can see by the response that people have by replacing and harnessing our natural cannabis that we that we produce, we see the benefits. Thirty years ago, when you were in medical school, did you think you'd be doing this? No, thirty years ago, when I was in medical school, <laughs> no, I didn't. I did. I would never have guessed this. Again, this is uh, I um, one of life's journeys, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I was just trying to stay ahead of my parole officer in medical school, and, <laughs> and, uh, and no, no, I, I uh, you know, you're right. It's not a, um, it's something I ever saw myself doing, but I, I now come from a place when I speak to others where, in fact, I am much less liberal than they are. And uh, so I speak from a place of, hey, listen, this is it's, this stuff works. And it reminds me of this 91-year-old patient I had who came in, and she had been uh, – she was like a very common situation. She was waiting for a new knee. And um, as such, she was in a lot of pain. She was on a fentanyl patch and breakthrough morphine for pain. And so she came in and we, we talked about going on cannabinoids and she was like many are, you know, well, I don't really believe in that. I don't really, you know, reticent to try it. But I was able to, you know, suggest her and convince her that she should try it. Well, she came in a month later and 91 years of age, again, relatively naive, well, naive with cannabis for sure, for sure. And said to me as she sat there, she, she looked at me and she said, um, you know, I have my cane here, but I feel like I don't even need it. I know, need it. I know my knee is a problem, but I don't really think it's a problem. Does it feel like a problem anymore? I have stopped taking all breakthrough morphine. I haven't taken any since I started the cannabinoids and I want off these fentanyl patches now. So she has nothing to gain and she stands up and she looks at me right in the eye. She points her, her finger at me. She says, Dr. Hepburn, this stuff really works. So again, that underscores the fact these are people who don't even think it's going to work or who have no um, previous biases towards it working. If anything, their biases are otherwise. 
and recognizing and realizing that this is useful. And I could tell you case after case like that. Yeah, I was talking to uh, one of the owners of a dispensary downtown, and I asked him about some specific cases. And he said a 93-year-old woman came in and said she needed help because she hasn't slept for seven years uh, since her husband died. Mm -hmm. And so they managed to get her some product. And uh, she came in the next day, and she said, thank you very much. I slept last night for the first time in seven years. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. And that also, to me, underscores a great demographic for the use of medical cannabis, and that is in, the, in a population of, of senior uh, seniors who are the currently the sort of more progressive you know, demographic for starting medical cannabis. And, you know, some research out of Israel has been fascinating for its benefits in senior facilities, where not only did they find that by using cannabis in senior facilities in Israel, they had patients who were sleeping better, they had less restlessness, they had less tremor, they had less pain, they were better appetites. The list went on of the, the you know, multiple benefits in a senior facility for the use of cannabinoids, so much so that it has now been recommended to be used in all senior facilities in Israel. Um, again, this is, we're seeing that population sleeping better, uh, you know, this it's funny. Uh, someone told me, hey, listen, after our bridge club, you know, finishes a bridge, we, we break out the brownies and we all sleep like babies that night. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And, and, yeah. and you, you see that and you hear that quite a bit. And, again, it's um, it's a demographic where sleep is, uh, you know, of, of all the reasons people take medical cannabis for, all the particular sort of disease illness process, the three symptoms that are best addressed are insomnia, pain, and anxiety, the evil triad. Give me some examples, further examples, of people who have come to you and you've recommended medical cannabis mm-hmm. and they've used it and it has helped them. Well, yeah, and, and in ways sometimes that you don't always anticipate. For example, uh, MS, as you probably aware, there's tribal knowledge amongst MS uh, patients that this is a very useful thing for the one of the big the big enemies of MS patients is, is a, something called glutamate. And we know that the effects of cannabinoids on the glutamate receptors is as a as a dampener, as a governor, as a as a retrograde um, uh, inhibitor is makes a huge benefit. But I had this patient come in on uh, with MS and so I began her on it and she was having quite a bit of pain in her leg and she came in later and said, you know, I said, So how are things? I said, Well the pain in my leg is so much better. I'm sleeping well. And then she said, and then my stomach pain is gone. And uh, I said, well, stomach pain, I'm really not, what's that about? And, she, and it turned out that the medications that she had been taking for her symptoms, in fact, she no longer had to take. And it had been causing her stomach issues. And so you see this sort of almost a cascade effect in ways that you don't anticipate. But, uh, again, I've seen patients who've... Um, I know one uh, had an art gallery, uh, several of them apparently, apparently, and she was an artist again uh, in her 60s, I believe. <laughs> she hears this and she's in her 50s, I'll sound bad. But uh, anyway, she had not been able to use her right arm with a peripheral neuropathy. And again, she, uh, you know, after going on it, she was very reticent to go on it. And I can remember uh, on her subsequent visit, her husband came with her. And uh, my medical office assistant, my secretary, said, uh, well, Mrs. So-and-so is here, but her husband would like to speak to you first, and he's a lawyer. I'm thinking, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he comes down the hall, yeah. and uh, and he, he greets me, and he, he grabs my hand. He said, I, I just want to say to you that 
is this has changed my wife's life. She is not only she had suffered anxiety because she could no longer work, and her her life or all her work was in her her, her art. Uh, it has helped her with her anxiety. She is painting again for the first time in two years. And I just want to thank you for your compassion and your courage. And, and I'll never forget that because it was, uh, and, uh, cause you thought you were going to court. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> you never like that your lawyers come stomping down the hall for any reason. That's right. But, uh, it, it is, uh, so again, it, there's been for me, and I try and tell, tell physicians this. It is actually very re- rewarding for you as a doctor to see people improve dramatically on on cannabis and you know you have something safe and you're not concerned about phone calls and about from the coroner's office that so-and-so has died of uh, opiate overdose uh, that sort of thing uh, as a result so i think that there's um again for physicians it is as rewarding as it is for patients i find when i was doing commercial radio and had Corey yellen on the program uh i received an email from a woman in Ontario. She was from Vancouver Island, but Mm -hmm. she was with her daughter, who was in her 20s in Ontario, who was suffering from colon cancer. And uh, she was in ICU, and she only had weeks to live. And uh, the mother was there with her, and she just decided to use her iPad Mm -hmm. and listen to the radio program, and she heard Corey. Mm -hmm. So she got in touch with Corey, and uh, Corey advised her about, uh, although we're not medical professionals, Mm -hmm. advised her about the use of cannabis oil. And the woman wrote back about a month and a half later, said, thank you, thank you, thank you. My daughter is alive today because of you, and uh, she is going to be fine. Uh, It it still will be a struggle. But those sorts of things really – I guess inspire you mm-hmm. and make you feel good that you've had an impact, a positive impact on someone's life. And do you find that is more is happening more because of the use of cannabis, or is there a, a balance between pharmaceuticals and cannabis? And I think that this is where we have to be careful because there are anecdote after anecdotes, and the, this is how the medicalization of marijuana has been sort of driven is by anecdotes. But anecdotes do not make for good science. These are not studies. So I think that in this very divisive sort of society, is it is important for us to eschew hyperbole and to get into the game where we we are oh completely one way or completely another. Oh, it cures can you know cures cancer if you just take a whiff of it, or it's uh, it's the devil's you know elixir from somebody on the opposite side. So we have to avoid being extremist on one way or the other because it only serves to sabotage the potential and the promise and the possibilities that exist with cannabis. So when I hear somebody say, oh, it's a cure for cancer, immediately it, it just, and every physician would just go, oh my goodness, it's another sort of South Pacific Island fruit, you know, elixir that's supposed to do this, that, and the other for you. And there's a lot of that snake oil sort of sentiment out there. Yes, but I will argue with you that there's a lot of snake oil within the pharmaceutical industry. Oh. The pharmaceutical industry has been fined billions and billions of dollars for false advertising. The pharmaceutical industry, uh, has ghostwriters writing their studies, and and they fund some of the studies. So there's snake oil on both sides. Well, absolutely. And I think that there's a uh, – yeah, they've had wrist-slapped how many countless times the pharmaceutical industries for for just that and yep. for, for for stating indications that they're, they're not allowed to be stated for. And so that goes on as well. I think that, though, when it comes to making something credible – is that I think that we don't want to put the cart before the horse and start giving you know claims to things that we don't know yet necessarily. We have not seen the, all the studies that have come in. 
Yes, on the tissue culture level, it is re- quite remarkable how receptors within the, what's called transform the cancer cells to CB1 and CB2 receptors, which are the cannabinoid receptors, how they change and what they do and how, you know, to put it uh, from a medical perspective, that stimulation of cannabis receptors on glioblastoma, which are cancer, brain cancer uh, cells, in fact, uh, stimulate de novo synthesis of a pro-apoptotic sphingolipid. I'm getting very clinical here, obviously, because it sounds cool. It's just <laughs> making, making me seem like an authority here. But no, it, it actually creates the synthesis of these substances within the cell that kill it, that creates suicide of that cell. So again, we, we, we're watching this and we're seeing, well, there is some effect of it. Now, uh, to the point that the National Cancer Institute of the NIH in the States has, if you look at their website on cannabis, agreed that there is a role of cannabis in the treatment. It appears to look like it has an effect in cannabis. That's also true of NIDA. They address the fact that cannabis and and cancer are actually, there's a useful role of it there, as it does with the um, the uh, FDA. So you, you see this now on major websites in the States, National Cancer Institute, nothing less than them, have have seen the studies and agree that there is some intriguing um, and uh, beneficial potential for cannabis in the use of assorted cancers. Now, the glioblastoma of the brain tumor is the number one researched one, but there are others, including colon and breast, and, and the list goes on. And I think we're going to see more and more. I read one here recently about um, myeloma, which is a bone a bone cancer, multiple myelomas. So, again, we're starting to see the studies, uh, but... You know, if you have cancer, you don't want to wait around for study results, particularly when you know that there have been some tissue culture, some preclinical studies that indicate there is a benefit. And so you're going to want to help yourself. I don't blame anybody for doing that. No one. Dave, did your Mormon upbringing have any impact on your decision to study cannabis? You know, no. And I have... um, yeah, I grew up uh, in as a Mormon, and so that already sort of put me in a certain certain health-related uh, um, codes when it comes to recreational, medic, you know, drugs and and alcohol and whatnot. So I I would say that if anything, it would have given me more credibility coming from that, and then had I spent my whole life, you know, toking and and that sort of thing. So again, I didn't do that, um, but it has. Um, you know, it's often difficult to overcome previous biases. There's a there's a saying that I love is that is that there are many of us that hold on to ideas that are easily formed but firmly held, and I think that that's true. And I think that sometimes it's more important for us to unlearn than to learn. In other words, in order for us to learn, we have to unlearn previous biases. So in that way, I think that I am successfully doing that. Great, I appreciate you coming in. Thanks very much. No, I appreciate being here, Ian. That's Dr. Dave Hepburn of Victoria, British Columbia. Wherever you are in the world, thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back with another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
to check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.